Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Australia on this day. My name's Michael Adams and today we're going back to Saturday the 17th of August 1889. That was the day that what's considered the most important art exhibition in Australian history opened in marvellous Melbourne. During the first century of European colonisation, white Australian artists followed traditional British academic styles of painting. But from the 1860s, French Impressionism had begun to evolve, accelerating after a major 1874 exhibition in Paris in which 30 artists, including Monet, Renoir, Degas and Pissarro, displayed 200 works. In far distant Australia, people were able to read about Impressionism, but they weren't able to see it, unless they were able to travel to Europe. One such lucky chap was artist Tom Roberts, who got to see Impressionist paintings and even meet Impressionist artists while on a walking tour of Spain in 1883. Returning home to Melbourne in 1885, Tom became the driving force and central hub of a group of artists who the following year established a camp at Box Hill before moving to Heidelberg. These artists, which included Arthur Streeton, Frederick McCubbin and later Charles Condor, experimented with painting en plein air, which basically means painting outdoors. For artists who founded what became known as the Heidelberg Art School movement, Impressionism was about quickly capturing the essence of what you saw, creating vivid and colourful renderings of native landscapes and urban scenes. By mid-1889, Tom Roberts was determined to impress Impressionism upon the Australian public by staging an exhibition. One of his major influences was American-born artist James McNeil Whistler, who'd staged a show of his own Impressionist works in London in 1884, while Tom Roberts was still in Europe. The success of James Whistler's exhibition was to a large degree attributed to his canny publicity efforts, production of an attractive catalogue and the creation of an aesthetically pleasing gallery environment. So Tom Roberts was resolved he'd do likewise. He chose the Buxton Rooms above Mr Buxton's art supply shop in Swanson Street, Melbourne, right across from the Town Hall. This central location ensured the show would be easily accessible to the average person. The artworks on display would all be 9 inches by 5 inches, giving the show its name 9 by 5. They'd mostly be painted on cedar cigar box tops, and because this was a cheap medium and the artworks were relatively small, they'd be priced affordably. Paying the sixpence admission fee meant being ushered into a gallery that was attractive in its own right. Tom Roberts and co had them decorated with great care. Light flooded in through a stained glass window, one wall was draped in dark red fabric, and everywhere you looked, there was what was called art furniture and art pottery, along with Japanese umbrellas and looped and knotted silks. Each afternoon, there'd be tea served at 4pm, and on Wednesdays, gallery goers would enjoy musical accompaniment as they pondered the paintings. To help guide people, Charles Condor was to design a collectible catalogue that he'd have printed on handmade paper. On its cover would be a drawing of a woman representing art bound by convention. The catalogue explained how Impressionism was different. Quote, 
When you draw, form is the most important thing, but in painting, the first thing to look for is the general impression of color. Another statement inside described impressionists' motivations, quote, an effect is only momentary, so an impressionist tries to find his place. Two half hours are never alike, and he who tries to paint the sunset on two successive evenings must be more or less working from memory. So, in these works, it has been the object of the artist to render faithfully and thus obtain first records of effects widely differing and often of very fleeting character. Tom Roberts, who was already a newspaper favourite, enlisted the support of Melbourne's popular and chatty table talk. And each week, this publication's writers chronicled preparations for what would be the Australian public's first chance to attend an Impressionist exhibition. This hype built anticipation among the elite and the more curious sectors of the wider public. But it also gave traditionalists an opportunity for anticipatory disdain at what they said was an artistic fad of no merit whatsoever. As he planned the 9x5 exhibition, Tom Roberts had hoped that, in addition to core Heidelberg members, Charles Condor, Arthur Streeton and Frederick McCubbin, he'd be able to get many other Victorian artists to contribute their works. Yet few did, possibly fearing the abuse that was being heaped on Impressionists, and in the end, only three others joined, Charles Douglas Richardson, Roger Falls and Herbert Daly. Just before the exhibition was due to open, Table Talk newspaper visited the Buxton Rooms and reported the artists were scrambling to get the 183 artworks, most by Roberts, Condor and Streeton, hung as they smoked cigarettes and traded mock insults. On Friday the 16th of August, the paintings were in place, the decor was just so, and the tea, oatmeal biscuits and decanters of spirits were ready for the gentlemen and ladies of the press to attend a preview. Because the art world was even then as fascinated by its own critical personalities as the actual artists, we have a vivid account of this preview thanks to Table Talk watching the watchers. The most eminent of Melbourne's art critics, Mr James Smith of the Argus, who was also a trustee of the National Gallery of Victoria, walked in and said to Tom Roberts, More eccentricities? Then he moved silently around the room, taking notes. Notes whose contents the artists had to dread because it was well known he didn't believe Impressionism was art worthy of the name. Other critics included the staid Captain Gurnett of The Age and three scribes from The Evening Standard. Then there was Ms Edith Castilla, who wrote under the name of Viva for Sydney's Daily Telegraph. She was seen scrutinising the paintings closely and also keeping her opinions to herself for the time being. Not so Mr Axel Gustafsson, a well-known social reformer and prohibitionist famous for his 1884 book about alcohol's ills that bore the cheery title The Foundation of Death, A Study of the Drink Question. This old stick in the mud, as Table Talk reported, quote, took a lively pleasure in sneering at anything and everything and remarking that if his little boy of five could not do better than that, he would hang him. It's refreshing to see that the My Kid Could Paint That critique was being thrown around by our great-grandparents' generation. The next morning, Saturday the 17th of August 1889, 131 years ago today, the 9x5 Impressionist exhibition was officially thrown open to the public. A Melbourne Punch correspondent eavesdropped on two ladies trying to decide what to make of Charles Richardson's painting Gold, Green and White, in which a naked girl reclines on a beach attended by a flock of seagulls. 
Who's she? asked one lady. The other had the answer. Oh, that's a mermaid. Her friend disagreed and a dispute ensued, with the sceptical lady apparently winning the debate with the comment, quote, She ain't got no tail. Melbourne punches right aside, such is public criticism. That was actually pretty rich coming from a writer who earlier in the same article had joked that bananas in a still life were conspiring to get themselves onto the footpath and cause public pratfalls. Flashes of intentional humour from the artist surely tickled the public, even as the lack of seriousness prickled snobbish critics. An example was Arthur Streeton's painting of a bird's nest filled with eggs that was labelled, Gone for lunch, back in five minutes. As the first members of the public puzzled and giggled at the Impressionists' efforts that Saturday, the artists themselves and all of Melbourne were able to open their copies of the Argus and read James Smith's verdict. Proving bad reviews are always much more fun to read than good ones, his estimation of these future masterpieces by future masters is as lively today as it was then. James Smith's thesis was that the 9x5 exhibition had no reason for being because Impressionism wasn't art because it wasn't finished. He argued, quote, It is as if a dramatist should give a performance on the stage of such scraps of dialogue, hints of character, ideas for incident and suggestions of situations as had occurred to him while pondering over the construction of a play. James Smith repeated the metaphor with musicians playing unfinished compositions and sculptors showing off roughly blocked out lumps of marble. Quote, None of these is to be regarded as a work of art. Neither is a painter's impression. But James was just getting started. Quote, The modern impressionists ask you to see pictures in splashes of colour, in slapdash brushwork, and in sleight-of-hand methods of execution, leading to the proposition of pictorial conundrums, which would baffle solution if there was no label or catalogue. In an exhibition of paintings, you naturally look for pictures, instead of which the impressionist presents you with a varied assortment of palettes. Of the 183 artworks, James Smith reckoned four-fifths, quote, pain the eye. Like the teetotaling Mr. Gustafsson, James Smith also reached for the kiddie comparison, saying some paintings, quote, resemble the first essays of a small boy who has just been apprenticed to a house painter. The Impressionist work didn't just pain the eye, they also pained the mind and the soul. With some, he said, quote, as distressing as the incoherent images which float through the mind of the dyspeptic dreamer. James Smith's favourite example was Frederick McCubbin's painting entitled Harrowing. He said it was quite true to its title because, quote, it represents a long-legged pig in company with two terribly deformed horses, or are they creatures of the slime, struggling to get away from one of those scarecrows which English farmers set up in their cornfields when their grain is ripening and dislocating their legs, number uncertain, in the process. In conclusion, while allowing that a few examples showed the artists were capable of better things, the Argus's critic said the exhibition would leave one with a very painful, depressed feeling about the future of art in the colony of Victoria, except of course for the fact that, quote, Impressionism is a craze of such ephemeral character as to be unworthy of serious attention. James Smith's review certainly rang true for someone calling him or herself Publico, who wrote to the Argus a few days later to say if you had a few coins for the entrance fee and 15 minutes to spare, you'd be amused by how bad the exhibition was. Turn the blobs of colour upside down, Publico reckoned, and they'd make as much sense, which is to say, none. 
Tom Roberts, Charles Conder and Arthur Streeton were to write a worthy response to James Smith defending Impressionism, which was published in the Argus on the 3rd of September. But their more immediate response was far more impressive because it recognised there was no such thing as bad publicity. What they did was they pasted up James Smith's review at the exhibition entrance. As Arthur Streeton remembered, quote, the people thronged to view the dreadful paintings. The 9x5 exhibition had plenty of fans, but what's interesting is how many of these champions still felt it necessary to qualify their admiration. Table Talk, the most consistent supporter, approved wholeheartedly, but even it noted, quote, The sketches are really so slight that they cannot stand the full blast of windy criticisms. And to single out individual sketches for lengthy scrutiny or description is ascribing to them an importance they do not and are not meant to deserve. Melbourne Punch, like what it saw too, though it worried that Impressionism's qualities, that is, the paintings looking like preliminary rather than finished pieces, might corrupt the common folk's relationship with the mysteries of the artistic realm. Quote, We think it is somewhat indiscreet to let the general public, who should be supposed to know nothing of the machinery that produces the effects which please them, behind the scenes. If we see how a thing is done, we are prone to think less of it and believe that if our time were not taken up with more important matters, we could do as well, if not better, ourselves. Viva, the lady critic for Sydney's Daily Telegraph, loved the 9x5 exhibition and defended the artists against James Smith. Quote, The exhibition has called down a shower of abuse and ridicule from many quarters, and the art critic of the Argus has brought all the weight of his three-score years of learning to bear on the movement, with the intention of crushing in the bud an idea so detrimental in his opinion to the true interests of art. Yet even Viva felt the need to explain and justify her good impression of Impressionism. Quote, An Impressionist endeavours to give his impression on canvas of an effective nature, which may be fleeting, exactly as he sees it, and without after-polish. The result is often very pleasing at a distance, but, of course, such sketches will not bear close examination. Just as Viva, like modern critics, was fond of sniping at her peers, she also indulged in the profession's other pitfall, patronising the plebs. She wrote, quote, The general public, who usually faithfully follow the old rhyme, be not the first by whom the new is tried, nor yet the last to lay the old aside, do not take very kindly to Impressionist pictures. Those who did, and those who paid for the paintings, said Viva, were their betters, the quote, learned dons and proctors, and other men and women of note in the dramatic, literary, and artistic worlds. Which brings us to that other enduring art world preoccupation, monetary value. On this score, the 9x5 exhibition was a success. Under the imperial currency, there were 20 shillings to the pound, and a guinea was 21 shillings, so one pound, one shilling. Most of the 9x5 paintings were priced from one to three guineas, with the most expensive being Tom Roberts' Rose Black and Grey, which would set you back nine guineas. 80 paintings sold during the exhibition, with the remainder auctioned off after it closed. As for what they're worth today, we get some idea from two relatively recent news stories. In 2012, one of Australia's greatest art donors, Max Carter, gave four 9x5 paintings to the Art Gallery of South Australia. Their value? 
$3 million. And last year, 130 years on from the exhibition, Tom Roberts' She Oak and Sunlight, original catalogue price, two guineas, sold at Sotheby's for $770,000. To speak of such matters, of course, makes you a Philistine, and the true legacy of the 9x5 exhibition is priceless. As the National Gallery of Victoria website puts it, quote, There was no precedent in the history of Australian art for artists grouping together to plan, promote and present an exhibition that reflected such a unified vision and which aimed to engage the public with what was still widely regarded as a bold new approach to painting. Tragically and tantalisingly, the National Gallery of Victoria also notes that only one third of the paintings are known to have survived. That means there are about 120 unaccounted for. Given they have a value of up to $750,000 each, if your old aunt has a landscape about yay by yay big on the mantelpiece, maybe take a closer look next time you're over for tea and oatmeal biscuits. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Australia On This Day. Make sure you're subscribed to get every episode as soon as it's released. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're after more tales from our fascinating history, check out my other show, Forgotten Australia. This podcast was produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. Thanks for listening and catch you tomorrow. 